0: Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's get to the new infamous burn after reading letter that Brian Landry's mom, Roberta, wrote to her son. A burn after reading letter, if that sounds like it might be incriminating, well, it could be. But one thing is for sure, this letter is bizarre. So let's get to it. 22-year-old Gabby Petito and 23-year-old Brian Landry embarked on a cross-country van trip that they were vlogging via Instagram and YouTube in the summer of 2021. On August 12th of that year, a bystander witnesses a confrontation between Gabby and Brian. And in the 911 call to report that confrontation, the witness to the dispute says that Brian hit Gabby. Now the highly scrutinized police cam footage between Gabby and Brian on a freeway shoulder in Southern Utah shows Gabby visibly upset and crying. And the police do document that Gabby hit Brian, but no arrests were made and the couple were instructed to separate for the night. Well, a week later, Gabby and Brian released a YouTube video that shows them laughing and kissing. And then two weeks after that video, Someone made a post to Gabby's Instagram account, and that's the last post ever made to that account. Now, on August 27th, two days after that last Instagram post, Gabby's mom receives a perplexing text from Gabby's phone. It reads, Can you help Stan? I just keep getting his voicemails and missed calls. Well, Stan is Gabby's grandpa, and according to Gabby's mom, she would never refer to him by his first name. So this is the point where Gabby's mother starts to become very concerned. Three days later, after no communication, Gabby's mom receives another text from Gabby's phone that some sources report as reading, no service in Yosemite. Well, on September 1st, Brian shows up in North Shore, Florida, alone. And then finally, on September 11th, after no communication with Gabby, her mother files a missing persons report in New York, where she lives, and law enforcement, and I'll be quite honest, the public began the search for Gabby. When law enforcement in Florida contact Brian's family, his parents say Brian was there, but he left for a hike in the Carlton Reserve in Sarasota, Florida. Now, it's at this point that the contention starts between the two families. Gabby's parents publicly accuse Brian's parents and Brian of refusing to tell them where Gabby is. And then Brian's parents issue a statement through their lawyer that they intend to remain in the background during the search for Gabby. Well, a week after Gabby is named a missing person, police began searching the Carlton Reserve, and they're unsuccessful in finding Brian. Well, eight days after her mother reports her as a missing person through amazing efforts by the public and their interest in this case, authorities find the remains of Gabby in the Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. Now the coroner rules her death a homicide by means of strangulation and the FBI takes over the case. Police then search the laundry home and find Brian's hard drive and they also seize the van that Gabby and Brian were road tripping in. Now one month later, On October 20th, Brian's remains are finally discovered in the Carlton Reserve and Brian died by a self-inflicted gunshot wound according to his family's attorney. Personal items of Brian's like a notebook and a backpack were also found nearby as well as a revolver. Now in the notebook found near the body, Brian claims responsibility for Gabby's death. He also admitted in those writings that he was trying to deceive law enforcement by using Gabby's phone to text his phone After Gabby had died. So here's where we get the burn after reading letter. We have to fast forward to March of 2022. Gabby's parents sue Brian's parents. In the Florida lawsuit, they claim Brian told the parents before returning to Florida that he had killed Gabby. So they're saying they knew the whole time. Now, the suit also claims that Brian's parents, Christopher and Roberta, concealed that their son had confessed to the murder and that they allowed law enforcement to continue searching for Gabby even after they knew she was dead. Now, through this civil lawsuit, Gabby's parents released a letter last week that was written to Brian by his mother, Roberta. This is the Burn After Reading letter. And here's what the letter says. And then we're just gonna dissect the bizarre language that Roberta uses. So she writes, I just want you to remember I will always love you, and I know you will always love me. You are my boy. Nothing can make me stop loving you. Nothing will or could ever divide us, no matter what we do or where we go. If you're in jail, I will bake a cake with a file in it. If you need to dispose of a body, I will show up with a shovel and garbage bags. If you fly to the moon, I will be watching the skies for your re-entry. If you say you hate my guts, I'll get new guts. Okay. Roberta then goes on in the letter to quote a Bible verse, Romans 8, 38. And that verse talks about that there's no powers that will be able to separate them. The envelope containing the letter, well, it has Brian's full name. And then in parentheses, it says burn after reading. All right. I'm shocked by this letter. I have an adult son and I've written him cards and letters multiple times over his life. And I've never used phrases before, nor can I think of a time I would need to use these phrases in a serious letter like I'll always love you manner. Remember the phrases if you're in jail, I will bake a cake with a file in it. If you need to dispose of a body, I will show up with a shovel and garbage bags. So I think this letter is alarming at best incriminating at worst and Roberta stated that the letter was written and given to her son before he and Gabby left for their road trip and that it was quote to reach out to Brian while he and I were experiencing a difficult period in our relationship okay she's claimed that the burn after reading reference is actually a -a play-in-a-book series about journaling called burn after writing and Roberta claims Gabby gave Brian that series of books she also says other odd references in the letter are part of a children's book series titled The Runaway Bunny and Little Bear. And attorneys for Gabby's parents have stated in court hearings that no references to shovels or burying bodies are found in those books. So where did they even get the letter from? An attorney for the Petito family said that the FBI found the letter in a box in a closet in the laundry's home, and that box contained items from the van he and Gabby were traveling in. So that leads my mind to question something. If this letter was about his relationship with his mom, and if she gave it to him before he left on his trip, why is that letter located with things about Gabby and things that concerned the trip? Okay, for Roberta's part, she has tried to explain away the letter in a statement, and she said the following, I truly loved my son, and I simply wanted to convey to him how much he meant to me and how much I loved him. I am sure people use phrases all the time to express to their loved ones the depths of their love. Although I chose words that I thought would be impactful with Brian given our relationship, the letter was in no way related to Gabby. Now the jury trial in this civil lawsuit is set for May of 2024. Now, Gabby's parents have already sued and received one settlement revolving around Gabby. In November of 2022, her parents filed a lawsuit against Utah's Moab City Police Department, where they claimed the negligence shown by law enforcement during that Utah traffic stop, well, that ultimately led to Gabby's death, according to them. Moab officials have said in a statement that Gabby's death was a terrible tragedy, but that no one could have predicted the tragedy that would occur weeks later and hundreds of miles away. Now in a separate lawsuit, the Petito family sued the Laundrie family for Gabby's wrongful death. The two parties settled the suit and the Petitos were awarded $3 million. They say the money was given to the Gabby Petito Foundation, which is dedicated to locating missing people and curbing domestic violence. Now with the jury trial almost a year away, I'll just keep this case on the back burner and I'll let you know if anything new arises. All right, let's head over to Utah where last week, a man called 911 after killing his wife, his mother-in-law and his father-in-law. He also killed three of the four family dogs and here's how it all went down in a short one hour window. Domestic issues had been brewing between the married couple, 34-year-old Jeremy Bailey and 36-year-old Anastasia Stevens. And the temperature between the two had become high enough. that police reported Jeremy removed guns from the home several days before the killings because he was questioning his own ability to control his emotions. In fact, during that 911 call on the day of the killings, Jeremy admitted to dispatchers that he'd been thinking about killing the victims and the dogs days earlier. So if Jeremy had removed the guns, which seems like a good thing, right? How did this tragedy escalate? Well, on the morning of the killings, an argument ensued between Jeremy and Anastasia. The dispute was so volatile that a probable cause statement says someone in the home called a therapist. So either Anastasia or her parents made that call and told the therapist they had uncovered some shady stuff and that it was really scary and really bad. They also told the therapist that it might be time for legal interference. They then said that Jeremy was still in the house and that they couldn't talk any further. Now, it was just a few minutes later that that 911 call is made. And during that 911 call, Jeremy initially told dispatchers that there was going to be a murder-suicide, but that wasn't true. Jeremy had already shot Anastasia and her 73-year-old father, Donald Stevens, and 61-year-old stepmother, Becky Stevens. And then almost simultaneous with the 911 call, someone made a Facebook post to Anastasia's page. And that post read, massacre suicide, just killed everyone. Becky Stevens, Dawn Stevens, and three of the four dogs. Then the post lists the home's address and police aren't confirming if Jeremy had made the post. Now the 911 call happened at 9.45 AM and surveillance video shows Jeremy leaving the home at nine that morning. So just 45 minutes before law enforcement gets involved, Jeremy visits a store and purchases a box of ammunition. He then returns to the home and police speculate that almost immediately Jeremy commits the murders because they believe the victims and dogs had been dead 20 minutes prior to the phone call. Now, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, when Jeremy was placed in a holding cell in the Davis County jail, he was excited and he said that he couldn't believe that he actually did it. He asked that his surviving dog be taken to a shelter. He also asked the investigators for the death penalty and firing squad if it was still active in Utah. So let's take a little side note, a deviation here. Utah does have a firing squad as an option for conviction of capital murder. Idaho also just passed a law earlier this year to implement the firing squad. And Mississippi, Oklahoma, and South Carolina They also have the firing squad as an option for death penalty convictions. Okay, back to Jeremy and to him being interrogated. Jeremy told investigators that he remembered that one of the victims had a gun and that he had used that gun in the murders since his were being held by his friend. Now, Jeremy was booked into the Davis County Jail on Friday on suspicion of three counts of aggravated murder, three counts of felony discharge of a firearm, and three counts of aggravated cruelty to animals. He is being held without bail, according to court filings. And finally today, this cold case update out of Alabama. Investigators announced last week that they had used DNA to identify a body that was found alongside a creek in 1997. So let's rewind to June 1st of 1997, when a father and his two sons made a shocking discovery while fishing in the Black Warrior River near the city of Walker County. They stumbled upon a decomposing body that was missing its head, feet, and hands. Other parts of the body, like his spleen and heart, had been removed. And investigators speculate that the body parts were missing in an apparent attempt to conceal the identity of the victim. Now, the gruesome efforts by the man's killer or killers appeared to work for years because sheriff's investigators' attempts to identify the man, they just remained unsuccessful. But in 2019, officials teamed up with a DNA technology company that was slowly able to make progress in the case. Okay, first, that company, they improved and clarified the DNA samples from the body, and then they compared that profile with others in genetic databases. Now, this time-consuming work eventually led the team to identify the man as 20-year-old Jeffrey Douglas Kimsey of Santa Barbara, California. Now, the DNA results actually led investigators to Jeffrey's parents. They still reside in Santa Barbara. And deputies said the Kimseys had no idea where their son had disappeared to. So, how exactly does this technology work? All right, well, Parabon Nano Labs is a DNA technology company based in Virginia. And scientists there were able to overcome the DNA degradation and bacterial contamination that occurred over those 26 years. And then they created a genetic profile. Now this technology is similar to what's used in a genetic testing database, something like 23andMe. And according to CeCe Moore, who is Parabon Nanolab's chief genetic genealogist, the initial step of creating the profile of the victim is they test for genetic markers or single nucleotide polymorphisms. Yeah, it's really scientific. Okay, those markers... Well, they help scientists look for possible relatives in all the available databases. But not all databases are available. The two particular databases that CC can check are Family Tree DNA and GED Match. Now, bigger databases that you've heard of, like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, they restrict some of their data sharing. Now, from those available databases, Parabon's team was able to identify a few distant relatives to the body's DNA, but because they weren't strong matches, it took months to zero in on the identity. The team also used DNA phenotyping to try to depict the victim's physical characteristics. And this actually helped local officials at that time release to the public a sketch of the victim so they could actually figure out what the victim looked like. But the illustration didn't produce any leads, which totally makes sense since the victim was from California. Now, according to the Los Angeles Times, the identity of the body was determined with high confidence after finding additional relatives and comparing that DNA with historical documents. Then, deputies were able to locate a family member in Tennessee, which led the investigators to the victim's parents in Santa Barbara. It's really such an amazing puzzle. Now, Cece and her team, they've championed this work for years. And let me give you just a few notable cases she has worked on. Cece played a significant role in identifying Joseph James D'Angelo. You might know this guy. He's the notorious Golden State Killer. Now, D'Angelo was arrested in 2018 at the age of 72, and he's suspected in more than a dozen murders from 1975 to 1986. He struck a plea deal and pled guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder as well as multiple counts of rape. And Cece and her team also assisted in the Lisa Zeigert murder. Now, Lisa was abducted and murdered in 1992 in Massachusetts. After analyzing DNA, Gary Shara was arrested and charged for her murder in 2017. Shera pled guilty in 2019 and was sentenced to life in prison. And CeCe's work also has helped free those who've been wrongfully accused. In 2019 in Idaho, Christopher Tapp was exonerated for the murder of Angie Dodge. Tapp had spent over 20 years in prison and CeCe's team had spent years working the DNA in the Angie Dodge case. And they were finally able to help investigators arrest Brian Drips. Once arrested, Drips pled guilty to the rape and murder of Angie. And partially because of her team's hard work, Chris Tapp is a free man today. All right, back to the case of Jeffrey Kimsey. Now, investigators have yet to release any information that would explain why the victim was in Northern Alabama in 1997. In fact, it appears that a missing persons report was never even filed for Jeffrey. And investigators have, however said they have persons of interest involved in the case and they are actively pursuing those leads. And they're asking anyone who might have connections to Jeffrey Kimsey to contact the sheriff's office at 256-582-2034. I'll be watching for updates in this cold case. And of course, I'll share those with you as they hopefully come forward. Well, that's your Thursday edition of Rise in Crime. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.